Hello guys and welcome back to the Not So Fit Couple podcast with your hosts Lucy Davis Fitz and Benjamin Holden. So on today's episode of the podcast we have a very special guest of us in Mr. Brad Schoenfeld who is PhD, CSCS, CSPS, FNSCA, is an internationally renowned fitness expert and widely regarded as one of the leading authorities on body composition training. He is a lifetime drug-free bodybuilder, has won numerous natural bodybuilding titles. And to me, Brad Schoenfeld is the godfather, the Don Corleone of the fitness mm-hmm. world. And what this man does not know about building muscle and hypertrophy is not worth knowing. His new book, Science and Development of Muscle, uh, Muscle Hypertrophy, second edition, is the most comprehensive resource on muscle hypertrophy in the world. And the two, the two new chapters deliver practical content on the measurement of muscle hypertrophy and advanced training practices. And as a great admirer of Brad, me and Lucy bought his book in pre-release and have recommended it to a lot of our coaches and other clients. So without further ado, I will let Mr. Brad Schoenfeld fill in any gaps and tell you a little bit more about himself before we, we dive into the book and some of the questions that we've had today. Well, thanks so much for having me on, Ben and Lucy. I'm happy to answer any questions. As Ben said, we really appreciate having you on and we're so excited because in today's podcast, we wanted to dispel some of the myths that have, I guess, erosed you to social media. Now, when I first started lifting and getting into the gym, social media, I believe, was not as saturated with fitness content as it is now. And what I mean by this is there isn't a lot of regulation to the information being shared on social media and a lot of the educational value has been lost along the way. So we are incredibly lucky to have Brad on today to dispel some of those myths around muscle building and fat loss. So like Ben said at the start, we have questions that are more so around muscle building, questions from myself and Ben, but also from you guys who have asked on social media. Can I just, I just want to ask a question before we dive into the questions we've had from other people. Brad, is is this you on the front of the book? Uh, I'm not going to tell. It's uh, <laughs> top secret. I think, I think if you would have led to that, you probably would sell more copies of it if we just go over to you. Um, but that's fine. So one of the first questions that um, we've had today, and it's probably one of the questions we get most often, and it's something that I've seen more and more of since home training and lockdown, and it is, what is a worthy metric for measuring the quality of a workout? Because... We see so often now with the rise of social media coaches and influencers and their workouts with titles such as workout to make you sweat, this workout is going to make you sore, and people are being duped into believing that workouts should leave them in a pool of sweat or not being able to walk the next day. And then if they haven't, then they don't feel like they trained hard enough. So how do you feel? Is it What's a good metric or a measurement for when training at home to make sure that you're progressing with your training? Yeah, so what I can tell you is what is not a good metric, and that is being overly sore or sweating a lot. Those are not good metrics. As a matter of fact, being too sore would have a negative effect. So if you're if you're finishing your workout, you could barely make it up the stairs uh, or down the stairs. Uh, you've not had a good workout. You've actually taken your body generally past where it's it can properly repair itself in time for the next training session. You wouldn't feel... I mean, the soreness really would be the next day. So if, if the next day you're that sore, because delayed, it's called delayed onset muscle soreness. Now, after workout, you might be stiff, but that can not necessarily lead to delayed onset muscle soreness. So really, I think the better 
uh, or, or the worst gauge would be if you're very sore the next day and then the next day, the next day, to the point where it's debilitating your workouts. That would be a, a negative indicator. Uh, I, I don't like to look at what an, because individual workouts can have specific purposes. So I think it's somewhat short-sighted to look at each workout as needing to have a certain metric uh, to gauge it on quality because you might have a workout that's a deload workout or or you mm-hmm. might you can be doing um, auto-regulatory workouts where based on the days you're, you're varying stimuli. So I, I think ultimately the metrics are what your progress is. It shouldn't be looked at on a workout-to-workout basis but rather over specified periods of time. And that has to have enough time where you're going to see the adaptations. And that's going to thus give you a gauge as to whether what you're doing overall, the overall scheme of what you're, uh, you're doing is working. Mm-hmm. Amazing. And I think with that as well, and this is, I think a lot of people do fall into the trap of, I'm so, I'm so sore. I've obviously had a brilliant workout. And this was one of the questions we get asked frequently and I think a lot of people get asked this question a lot. So kind of following on from that last question. So muscle damage is obviously one of the methods of hypertrophy. But in terms of its actual importance to, hypertro- to hypertrophy, could you explain that a little bit? Yeah. So when we look at the mechanisms of hypertrophy, they're not well established at this point. I want to start off by saying that first. So we know that a a degree of mechanical tension, you know, high levels of mechanical tension do fuel uh, muscle growth. Uh, and that's basically the force that's placed on the muscle. And even that, how that is plays out, because we know that very light loads can produce high degrees of mechanical tension towards the last several repetitions. So it, that even in itself is somewhat of a, a nebulous concept. But other factors still need to be better understood. And metabolic stress is one, muscle damage is another. One thing that is pretty clear is that too much muscle damage has a negative effect on growth. Whether a certain degree of muscle damage is required for growth remains still somewhat equivocal. Now, we do know that muscle damage by itself can produce muscle growth. Uh, That's been shown in, in multiple studies. The question is, is it additive to a resistance? So if you just damage a muscle, there's been studies that have shown that over time when the muscle remodels, it will, will grow from what it did. But that's in, a, in the context of no training whatsoever. Uh, we also know there are mechanisms related to the mechanism of damage that are involved in hypertrophy, such as uh, metab- uh, muscle damage increases what are called satellite cells. And satellite cells basically are muscle stem cells that are required for long-term muscle growth, for continuing to grow. Again, the question, though, is whether it produces an additive effect uh, to high degrees of mechanical tension. High degrees of mechanical tension by themselves will induce a satellite cell response. So these are all things that aren't well understood. Uh, And uh, I would hope over the next several years we're learning a lot more as time's going on, uh, research is progressing. But I wrote a paper, which I know many of the listeners probably have read, called The Mechanisms of Muscle Hypertrophy and Their Application to Resistance Training, which was actually my master's project back in 2009. Um, and it was published in Journal of Strength and Conditioning. And just looking back on what 
we know since I wrote that paper, I mean, the, over a decade ago now, there's been huge strides made. And we're, I would say even with all the strides we've made, we're still pretty much in the early stages of really understanding these factors. So I wish I can be more um, concrete in some of my answers to, to things like this, but I can only tell you what is shown through evidence. And like I said, what we do know is that high levels of muscle damage are a negative. It is possible that there is a sweet spot where some muscle damage uh, muscle damage at a certain level might have an additive effect. By the way, I'd also add, I'm not sure, now there's different ways of measuring muscle damage too, which I don't want to get into here. It's to get into the technicalities. This would be more of a research-based topic. But I, I will say that I'm not sure that you can actually have a high degree of mechanical tension without having some degree of muscle damage occurring. You can have less or more, but I don't know how it can occur in the absence of some degree of structural perturbations to the tissue. So just from our own experience, Brad, where do you think that this notion that muscle damage and being sore the next day why do you think that's idolized a lot by the, the more modern era of the fitness industry? Because I know when I first started training in my early years, this was something that, of a trap that even I fell into. Yeah. And I remember um, doing some workouts, such as like, I'm sure you know, the, the Tom Platt's leg workout. Um, and they were kind of like mega volume workouts. For some days, I'd, I've done that workout before and literally couldn't walk for like seven days, which obviously then impaired my training because I wasn't able to train for lower body for a long 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 while and obviously that kind of soreness and being run into the ground by your training is often idolized by both trainers and coaches who you will see in the gym coaching clients and um, so where do you think that kind of idolization of, of muscular damage and, and doms comes well, from I, I again i can speculate just knowing from people that i've worked with but usually number one people are perceptual beings so this is a perceptual response they can actually feel the soreness and there's this thought that, hey, if I have, uh, if I'm feeling it, it must be doing something to my muscles. Mm-hmm. Uh, that uh, that this breakdown must be causing them. That I've, if you're not feeling, and vice versa, if you don't feel anything, it's like, well, if I'm not feeling anything, then maybe I didn't do anything to the muscles to make them want to grow. So look, there is a uh, somewhat of a valid response that. The body does respond to stimuli and tries to get stronger from when, when it is um, broken down. I mean, it it's kind of goes along with the uh, the gas response uh, by Selye, general adaptation syndrome, where you have a uh, an initial negative effect uh, that is then seen by supercompensation, and that's seen like with with a let's say you're you get the flu, you get a a uh, a counteractive response, which is an immune response, which makes you more resistant to the flu. So you get better because of the negative response. So again, it's hard to know different people are going to have different uh, thoughts on it. But I think the primary thing is just the perceptual. When you feel it, feel something happening in your muscles, you feel you think something's working. And that is not necessarily logic does not necessarily translate into practice as we know. Yeah. So as opposed to that whole notion of kind of almost to a certain degree seeing is believing yeah yeah so yeah. if we go if we go into kind of another theory which um we had another question for you brad as well from from some of the guys on social media and i think this is another one which has arisen since especially with home training 
And from what we have seen is the use of the term high-intensity workout, which I believe is being used in, sort of in the wrong context by some people. Um, and they're using it in comparison to high-intensity interval training. So in the sense of hypertrophy, can you just put into context for us what is meant by high intensity? Uh, you'd have to tell me. I, I, to different people, that would have different meanings. So there is like the Mike Menser, Mike Menser, who maybe some of your listeners might not know, was a very popular professional bodybuilder. And uh, he had based, or he actually called it heavy duty, but that was based upon the work of Arthur Jones before him, who developed this one set to failure uh, approach, which he called high intensity training. And then Mike Menser picked up on it and popularized it, I think, to probably a greater extent than even Jones did. Uh, that's one form. Intensity by itself can just mean training to failure. So you'd have to you'd have to define for me what you mean or what you think the people mean by high intensity training for me to answer that. So I think with what's seen on social media when people say high intensity interval training is like a hit class. So like oh, so you're talking high intensity because in, I thought uh, Ben had said not high intensity. Yeah, no, what, what we're saying is people seem to be mid- mixing up the difference between high intensity training and then high-intensity interval training. So the context the context in which they're using it on social media is, is very different. And I think people are getting confused between the well, High-intensity interval training has a very specific meaning, and that, that is universal, in that it is using basically bouts of endurance-type aerobic exercise, which are taking you above your lactate threshold, generally well above your lactate threshold, and then going having other intervals interspersed with intervals where you're well below your lactate threshold. And that can be the classic example would be a bout of sprinting and then or or running very fast and then followed by a period of walking. So you do, let's say, a minute walking, then a minute running very fast and a minute walking. That's kind of your classic high-intensity interval training. And there's variations on it. There's sit, which is sprint interval training, and that would be sure you can't sprint generally for a minute, so the sprint would be a less time. But anyway, that follows that pattern. With high-intensity resistance training, it takes on a different context. So, again, you'd have to qualify for me what the people are referring to in that context. Yeah, so that's I think you answered it yourself. People think just by using the word high-intensity that that is a hit class, that mm-hmm. that is doing sprints and it's doing a circuit when, it, when it's not because people label their workouts as high-intensity and they filmed a hit, a hit class and – it's just dispelling that myth that high intensity does not mean solely mean a hit training. And what I would say is certainly is that high intensity interval training is not going to be ideal for muscle building. I mean, you might gain, especially if you're a beginner, you might gain a little muscle. Uh, and it's primarily, at least from some of the early, some of the tra- uh, studies, more in the type one fibers. But it's more basically high intensity interval training follows aerobic training benefits for the most part. You're going to be getting increases in mitochondria, aerobic enzymes, cardiovascular uh, VO2 max, other cardiovascular and cardiorespiratory benefits, and much less so on muscle and strength building. You're going to get some, particularly if you're a beginner, but especially as you get more experienced, that's not building substantial muscle. Yeah, I think you you referenced something about this um, on a slightly similar topic in the book in regards to the effects of well, some of the effects of aerobic aerobic exercise on muscular damage in comparison to resistance training. Um, and it's to do, I think, with the buildup over 
the next couple of days afterwards um, to do with muscular damage and to do with, um, was it creatine, creatine. Uh, kinase release? Yeah, so I think you you draw on some of the factors with that in regards to the, the effects of those and the different types of exercise on muscular damage as yeah. well, didn't you? Yeah, so the damage actually follows different time courses experienced in, let's say, downhill running versus uh, uh, with aerobic training, usually doing downhill running to get the eccentric effect for muscle damage. But you can get it uh, if you're overdoing it. So anyway, bottom line is the time courses are different. The effects of the muscle damage actually display in different ways. Another question, I think this is probably more prevalent in the UK because we still don't have gyms. Mm -hmm. We have no access to uh, any gym. You don't have it in New York either at this um, time. So it uh, depends on where you are in the U.S. Yeah, a lot of uh, places in the U.S. still do not have access to gyms. Oh, so this, a question, uh, this question will apply to there as well. So what, and this is a question we have had continuously, and I assume a lot of people I think it's quite general have, as well. It's very general. But what would be your advice to someone who is at home at the moment with very limited kit and they're trying to retain some muscle tissue? Well, first of all, retaining muscle is much easier than building it. So you can get by to retain muscle doing much less, both in volume, um, loading, et cetera, than, you can, than building strength and, and muscle. Um, what I would say is, is that if you carry out um, exercise with a high level of effort, you can do it with very little equipment and still certainly maintain, if not gain, depending upon now, if you're a high level bodybuilder, it's going to be pretty difficult to, to gain and you might even lose a little. So part of it will depend upon where you're at. But the, for the vast majority of people, they're not, a, they're not pro bodybuilders or anywhere close. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. So, I mean, we've done so much research showing that very light loads up to like 40 plus reps uh, can build just as much muscle as a hypertrophy range, a 10 rep uh, area, as long as you're taking it close to failure. So as long as you're pushing really hard. I mean, doing things like uh, a single leg squat, you could do a body weight, single leg, uh, rear, rear foot elevated squat. You put your foot up on a chair or a bench at your home, sofa even, depends on what you have. Uh, and, I mean, you pump out 20, 25, 30 reps with that, uh, and you'll, you'll you can get a really good uh, burn on that. I mean, you you can get very good results. I mean, push ups, uh, and you could do things by a weighted vest. That the, there are things you could do with very little space requirement. A weighted vest takes up zero space, basically zero space in your house. You could also buy it like I did. So I actually, when this whole COVID thing happened, I uh, luckily got in early because the they ended up selling out. But I bought a pair of adjustable dumbbells. So I have adjustable dumbbells. I got a bench. Uh, I got resistance bands. So I have a, equipment that's very portable, takes up really very little space in the house. And, uh, you know, I do some higher reps with certain things, but I'm able to get a very good workout. I got a chin-up bar. So, again, you don't need a lot of equipment, certainly, to maintain muscle. Uh, the real key is, is to training with a high level of effort. So coming at least pretty close to uh, training to muscle failure you know, with an RIR, repetitions in reserve of, you know, a couple reps short, especially as you're getting in your upper, your higher rep ranges. Yeah. I think a lot a lot of the things that we've been doing with people and with different clients in regards to helping to, to try and progressively overload some of the training at home is especially with a lot of people generally working with resistance bands is just looking at um, more so time under tension. So for example, with some people who may be doing, instead of doing like three, four, 
set of 12 reps. We'd look at kind of like three or four sets of doing 60 seconds on the load. And then the week after doing like 70 seconds on the load and the week after doing like 80 seconds on the load and increasing the set. So just progressively overloading using different uh, variables instead of just looking at rep ranges. So again, more so using time with attention to progressively overload with such limited kit to you. Yeah, to and you can home. slow down the repetition. So instead of doing, let's say, a uh, one second up, two seconds down, you can do three seconds up, three seconds down. You don't want to go too slow, but there is some evidence that really slowing it down to very slow levels, you know, eight, 10 seconds per uh, concentric, eccentric, can potentially have some negative effects. But certainly in your anything, three, 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 four, four even, uh, makes the reps harder to do. And uh, again, it's whether it's time or reps, I think it's more less relevant than making sure those last several reps, however you're going to go about, uh, you know, carrying it out, whether you're doing it based on time or reps, uh, just making sure your last couple of reps are close to failure, that you're that you're exerting yourself with a high level of effort, because that look, ultimately, that's how the body responds. If you're not challenging your muscles beyond their present capacity, they're not going to respond. So if you're using very light weights, and you, you've left 10 reps in the tank, well, basically the body has no reason to, to not, not only to hypertrophy, but has no reason to even stay at the same level because now it's perceiving that you don't need the same level of effort that you used to need. So basically it's just showing your body, for making your body understand that it needs a high level of effort. And what does that translate into? Increased strength, increased muscle. When the body knows that it, it is going to be challenged, it is going to respond in ways that are going to be uh, beneficial to its ability to handle that challenge. And in this case, it is more muscle, more strength, more potentially more muscle endurance, et cetera. Cool. Thanks a lot, Brad. And then if I had another question, I think you've, you've kind of touched on this already in regards to the elements of hypertrophy. Um, so to do with the, the free elements and just for our listeners who are lifting and looking into to hypertrophy a lot more, the three elements obviously include muscular damage, mechanical tension, and metabolic stress. Yeah, so one of the questions that we've had about the three components is if we had to prioritize one in regard to building muscle tissue. I, I don't, like answering those questions, why would you ever have to do that? So to me, it's a silly hypothetical. Just like if someone says, what is what would be your best exercise if you can only do one exercise? Why would you, you don't have to do that. So why would you pose the question? It's answering a question that really doesn't provide utility in my opinion. So obviously, as I mentioned earlier, mechanical tension is the primary driver. Without mechanical tension, you can, you can increase metabolic stress, let's say through a blood pressure cuff on someone without doing any, you're not going to get the same degree of hypertrophy if you combine it with mechanical tension. The question with the mechanisms is, are they additive to one another? So if you're saying what is the most important uh, factor, it is mechanical tension. There's no question to it. But I don't see how it's relevant to ask questions like if you needed to do one, because you don't. <laughs> it's just uh, if the goal is to maximize hypertrophy, you want to look at every all your factors and then find out what is the best mix of doing that. And, and by the way, I don't necessarily even try to look at the mechanisms are good for understanding, in my humble opinion, for understanding uh, what drives hypertrophy and how to, in general, structure routines. But I think we want to look at things like the variables themselves and what we know through research. The, the mechanisms kind of take care of themselves. So, I mean, if you're going to do, let's say, higher reps, 
if that's something that's beneficial to combine higher reps with lower reps, well, the higher reps will have high levels of metabolic stress and the lower repetitions don't. So whether if you're just looking at it from a variable standpoint, look at high reps, low reps, and look at the research on that. And the metabolic stress and mechanical tension are, like I said, they are taking taking that for granted within the uh, into account, taking that into account based on the variables that you're looking at. So a question we have here, and this is a very broad question. It's also one that I'm very interested with because I've come from a background where I've managed to keep a lower body fat percentage and build muscle. And a lot of the time people question genetics. Now, and I know you mentioned this in your book as well, but just the broad question, do genetics influence the ability for somebody to grow muscle? Absolutely. Uh, Genetics, you don't need research studies to show you that. I mean, there's people that uh, they pop out of the womb and they look like they've never lifted a weight and they look like they've been training (laughs) for 10 years. Uh, by the way, I, I, yeah. when I do seminars, I have a picture of Dorian Yates at, I think he was training for like three months at the time. I mean, the dude was, certainly it was before his pharmaceutical uh, experimentations. Uh, he was like 18 years old. But you look at him, he looks like he'd been training for 10 years you know, or at that age. And uh, there's other people, they've trained a long time and they don't barely look like they left. Now, part of that, of course, is going to be, uh, I just made a post today, uh, interestingly, about genetics and their relevance on Instagram. But uh, genetics always are going to matter. What I would say is, is that there is no one who cannot build a, appreciable muscle. Some people, just based upon who you, your parents were, is going to make, be the difference whether you might be a Mr. Olympia candidate or not. Uh, or a natural bodybuilding champion, mm-hmm. if you want to go that route. Uh, so if you did not pick the right parents, if you do not have good genetics, you're never going to be a bodybuilding champion. It's just as simple as that. That doesn't mean you can't build a good physique and have big muscles or bigger muscles, certainly. But there's always going to be a, a genetic component. And they've tried to quantify it through research, and it seems somewhere around 50% of your results or so are. Uh, based upon your who, who your parents are yeah i think i think i'm um, just based on what you were saying about dorian yates i think there was a, a similar youtube interview i think it was with um eddie hall and to do with his genetics and i can't remember what the exact gene is called now because i think you've referenced it somewhere in your book but people call it the hercules gene i think is it something to do with the deficiency in is it um balls no, the, the gene. Is it well, there's a myostatin gene. Uh, very few people have a, a double knockout from so myostatin limits the amount of growth that you can get. Very few people have yeah. a double knockout, but the ones that do have have both myostatin genes, if you went from each parent, knocked out, get are hugely muscled. And there are cows. Those they're called the Schwarzenegger cows, the Belgian blue cows. Yeah. Uh, I have that <laughs> yeah, in my book as well. And uh, you look at them, and it's just like a ripped cow. But I mean that there's multiple genes. There's a angiotensin angiotensin converting enzyme gene, so it's called the ACE gene. Anyway, there, there's several actin. There's another gene, ACTN gene. So there are certain genes that have been uh, at least thought to be involved. And th- that again is a uh, topic for future research. Yeah, I, I know. I'm not. Um, there's a there's an interview with Eddie Horney talking about. It. I think it is, he's had some um, research done in, in regards to genes or. His, 
a bit of a diagnostic stone and it, it was believed to have a, a, some kind of deficiency in it or which allowed him to grow mm-hmm. more than usual so it was kind of like the the gods sort of aligned when they were mm-hmm. they were mixing Eddie Eddie Hall up and, and unfortunately he got he he kind of got into lifting. There was a rumor was, was that a Flex well. Wheeler, who was a popular bodybuilding champion in the 90s and early yeah. 2000s, uh, had a, a null myostatin uh, gene mutation. So who knows? So um, just on to the, the next uh, question then, Brad, and this is to do with, most to do with nutrition. And we know there are different ways with different amounts that the, the body can absorb a protein. But this is a question, again, that we get uh, often over and over again. But... Um, how much can we consume at one time or how much can the body utilize at one time in regards to the amount of protein yeah, that so we take in and digest? How much protein can the body absorb is virtually unlimited. So the absorption just means that it gets into the bloodstream for the most part. And most, there can be, depending upon if you're taking single amino acids, sometimes you can have malabsorption of certain single amino acids if they're overwhelmed by others. But, um, the body can absorb almost an unlimited amount. How much can it use is still somewhat of a uh, equivocal question. We actually I collaborated on a paper with a colleague of mine, Alan Aragon, uh, not too long ago, which was published in the uh, Journal of the International Society of Sports Nutrition. We discussed this topic. Um, fact, there's going to be factors that, that need to be accounted for. So are you taking in the protein as just a single, like a whey protein. So if you're drinking, which many of the studies on the topic have done, that's going to have a different uh, impact because it can be whey protein, first of all, is very quickly absorbed into the system and thus undergoes more rapid oxidation of the amino acids. Whereas if you're taking in, let's say, whole foods, let's say a steak with potatoes and uh, um, broccoli, let's say, vegetables, you're going to have a slower time release of the amino acids. So it's going to be really equivocal. Um, I would say that ideally what we pegged was somewhere between 0.4 to 0.5 or so grams per kilogram per meal. Uh, but even that, I would say, is still somewhat equivocal. Look, if you, if you look at some of the more recent data on intermittent fasting, it doesn't seem to show much of a negative effect. And obviously, the people doing intermittent fasting need to get in a lot more protein than in single meals. So. What I'd say is, is that mm-hmm. ideally my re- general recommendation is somewhere around 0. 0.4 to 0.5 grams per kilogram per meal spread out over four or so meals a day. If you're going to have four meals, uh, that would seem to be kind of your ideal for maximizing uh, muscle protein synthesis. Yeah, I think that's where probably the, the debate comes up with it is because both me and Lucy um, do intermittent fasting. So I think that's why one of the questions has arisen in regards to the amount of protein. So for example, if we're intermittent fasting and we sometimes have um, less frequent meals, but larger amounts of more calorie dense meals, then is there kind of an optimal amount with that? But I, I guess for a lot of people, especially for our listeners who aren't professional bodybuilders or who aren't looking to compete are often more looking at the, the suboptimal um, lifestyle rather than trying to optimize every single and um, part of their diet and, and training, I suppose. I think what's interesting as well, because I get asked this a lot, I've always, always had a very high protein diet and I'm talking 160 grams of protein a day and it's never, ever had an adverse effect on me. And I know there are some research papers that suggest the risk of high protein diets. And I've personally never found this. So I've always said to people, 
I've I've never had an adverse effect of high protein diets but what would what I guess what's your view on someone like myself who's 143 pounds having such a high protein diet is it an, is it a negative thing or yeah I'm curious yeah there's no research and I certainly that I'm aware of in healthy people and I've looked at, at all the research uh, that would show that a healthy individual is at a negative health risk for with high protein diets. And that's been showing up to very high protein consumption, somewhere around four grams per kilogram, three and a half, four grams per kilogram over fairly long periods. Over, um, well, I think it was a year this study ran or so. So, and that goes for kidney, bone, really any health marker, where it can be a negative and potential negative, at least based on what we see from the current research is in those with uh, kidney issues. So if you have a kidney issue, then uh, having a higher protein diet may be negative, certainly very high. Uh, it's not clear as to what your ideal, there's been some conflicting evidence that I've seen on, on what actually Obviously you should be taking, but certainly very high protein, high protein diets would be diet contraindicated. Do with satiety as well. Um, regards to appetite. So I often find it my appetite isn't as high when I'm on a higher protein diet for that reason as well. Yeah, yeah, definitely. A question, I think this is probably the most common question any coach would ever be asked. And we just want to know your view on it. And it is basically, what is your view on this whole idea of building muscle and losing fat at the same time? Yeah, so I, first of all, I see that a lot in my own studies and as well as many of my colleagues. It's been well documented. Body recomposition can happen. There's three basic factors involved. A, number one, how much weight do you have to lose? So the more weight you have, the more weight you have to lose, the uh, greater your ability to have recom- body recomposition. Number two, what is your training age, training status? So if you've been training for, if you're a newbie, you're going to have a much easier time having a recomposition losing fat while gaining muscle. If you've been training 10 years, much more difficult. And by the way, combined, if you're lean and you've been training a long time, it becomes even more hard. And the the white elephant in the room, of course, also is uh, um, anabolic steroid use or uh, pharmacological enhancement, if you will. It doesn't have to be steroids, but other uh, pharmacological aids. And uh, even with people who are lean and have been training a long time, if you're taking anabolic uh, agents, you can undergo body uh, recomposition, transformation. But other than that, it starts becoming, so can you do it otherwise? Yeah, actually, we just had a, I just was involved in a case study of a natural bodybuilder. And in the early, he was started out very lean. He was, I think, started 11, 10, 11% body fat. I've been training for eight, 10 years. And the first couple of months, he was just starting his diet. He was losing body fat and actually gaining a little bit of muscle. And then all of a sudden it fell off the cliff. <laughs> and as he started getting into his competition diet, he just started losing you know, substantial amounts of fat-free mass along with his... Uh, so, um, one of the other questions I think will be fitting for both listeners in the UK and, and I suppose for, for any of the guys who are in New York as well, just with gyms being closed. And one of the questions that we've had a lot recently is regards to uh, the gyms reopening because for for the guy, for us in the UK, it's looking like it's going to be around August time. And <laughs> yeah, which is great. And the question is, what would be 
your key pointers to people in regards to when we first go back to the gym in regards to training volume and balancing recovery because i think what a, what a lot of people will, will probably do is is jump in the deep end go back to the old regime or routine that they're probably sticking to and then especially when it comes to, to doms and muscular soreness are going to be sore for days after so it becomes a balancing act between the, the training volume and the, the recovery time and how how you're able to get back in and start training again so just what you, what would your advice be with 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 that so to speak brad so first of all, it's going to somewhat depend, of course, on what you've been doing. Mm-hmm. So if you're if you just have been doing nothing, then you got a real. So I'll, I'll give it this way: if you haven't been doing anything, let's say you just took the three months, whatever, four or five months off, uh, start off very slow. You should start off with roughly fifty percent volume, uh, have an RIR repetitions in reserve of uh, more than three or more, so you're stopping well short of failure. Um, the load should be relatively lighter as well in that regard uh, and do that for a week. Then uh, the next week go up to 75% where your RIR can then start approaching two to three. And then the, the third by the third week, you should be back to where you can be. If you've been training, then it's going to somewhat depend upon what you've, you know, what have you been training on? Just the fact that you're going to use different equipment. So the, Changes in equipment itself tends to bring about muscle damage. Changing exercises will uh, cause greater muscle damage. So doing novel, basically uh, muscle damage has to do with novel stimuli. So if you're doing something you haven't been doing before, then that's going to be, that that can set you back. So what I'd say is, is that still go into it um, somewhat easier. Uh, The volume uh, should be somewhat lower, but again, it's going to depend really on what, you've been doing and, and the basically the differences between what you've been doing to what you're going to do. And if the, the greater the differences, the more you're going to have to be cautious in that regard. Mm-hmm. I know I um, listened to, um, I think it was Jeff Nippard who, who spoke about this on a recent video and he was talking about it, doing it in phases as well, kind of similar to what you've been talking about there, Brad. And he was talking also about the type of exercise that we're doing. So in regard to what he was talking in that kind of two week first phase, of, of maybe for some people, depending on how much training they've been doing at home, doing sort of isolation style exercise only, and then leaving maybe some of the compound lifts um, and lifting heavy loads in kind of that, that, that second phase of maybe week three to week four. Yeah, certainly that's a good option. I'm a, I think Jeff is a really astute fitness pro. And look, there's not one one way to go about it. So yeah, you could focus more on single joint exercises, of course, then you're going to have to then go to your multi joints. So if you haven't been doing anything, then I, I think that uh, that might be a more or a more beneficial strategy. If you've been training in, at home, at some point you're going back to your uh, multi joints and they're going to be a novel stimulus and you're still going to have to approach that with caution. Yeah. So yeah, there's never one answer to yeah. applied questions. When, when you're asking questions like these types of applied questions, I'd always say it depends and there's always multiple strategies that can be pursued. Yeah, I think um, with that, one of the things that I was, I was going to mention was this kind of period. So for say, for example, people haven't been training for three or four months and I suppose what it's commonly known as with like the bro terms would be like newbie gains. Do you think there's going to be this period of where people go back to the gym of where they're going to be really kind of hyper-responsive to adaptation? Yeah, and certainly that can happen. Uh, now, what I'd say is, is that generally that's just bringing you back to your former baseline. But there is some evidence that perhaps 
desensitizing muscle can actually have a greater effect. That's not clear. Uh, I certainly don't think taking three months off is a great strategy for that, but (laughs) shorter periods of desensitization, that's where you're kind of deloading or even active recovery might come in. Glad that was the last question that we we had for you anyway. So it's been an absolute um, pleasure to to obviously have you on today. In regards to um, the new book, if, um, if people want to grab this, um, where is, is the best place to, to grab it from? Amazon.com is uh, generally the best place. I know the UK, it's not uh, somehow not in stock. But you can also go to my publisher, which is Human Kinetics. Mm-hmm. Uh, so if you go to the Human Kinetics website, it also is available in PDF format from Human Kinetics. On Amazon, it's just in hardcover and in Kindle. But if you want PDF, you can get it from my publisher. So... Yeah, it's it's a very sciencey book, I would say. So uh, it's it's not a light reading training book. I mean, it has training, uh, certainly a lot of applied aspects, but it's for people who really want to understand the science of muscle growth. Yeah, I think even more so for for me and Lucy when we've been going through the the, the newest edition, it's even for us like one of those books that um well it's not like a normal read that you have to take a lot more time kind of digesting the content, and we find it best to have a, a separate notebook with it and just take our own notes from the book as well and some of the key pointers. And I think that for us has been one of the best ways that we've we've learned from it. Um, and also, Brad, just in case people want to catch you on socials or anywhere else, where's the best place that they can find you? Yeah, I would just say Google me, but I'm on uh, Twitter uh, Twitter and Instagram are the two main ones. I'm also on Facebook and they, you just search my name, you'll, you'll find me. Brilliant. And thanks for all those listeners who have tuned in today. Yeah, a massive, massive thank you to everyone who has listened. Make sure you tag us all on the podcast so we know that you've enjoyed it. And as always, if you can pop us a vote on the British Podcast Awards, that would be greatly appreciated. And a massive, massive thank you again, Brad. This podcast has been extremely valuable and we're so lucky to have had you on. My pleasure, guys.